Welcome to In China with Michelle Zhou. Manufacturers have long known China to be a leader in their industry, but now the world is recognizing China as a business center for companies, market traders, education, and artists. It's no wonder that the economy has grown to be the world's second largest. In our program, you'll learn from the thought leaders and professionals who have lived in both the U.S. and China and continue to do business there. Now, here is your host, Michelle Zhou. Welcome, everyone. It's so great having you here again. You are listening to In China with Michelle Zhou, and I'm your host, Michelle. I'm the founder and CEO of Pacific Technologies Consulting Group. We help American and Chinese organizations learn from each other, bridge their needs, and grow their businesses internationally. You can contact me at our company website. ptcgconsulting.com, and make sure to click on the links in my show link. And I'll always welcome you to connect me on LinkedIn. Last week, we have talked about the perceptions and the reality of Chinese innovation, and we had YP Chen in this show. What caused the GDP growth in China in the past 40 years? Just to remind our audience, last time YP shared the data with us. China's GDP was 150 billion U.S. dollars in 1978, and it has grown to 12.25 trillion U.S. dollars in 2017. If you do the math, that's 82 times in near 40 years. So, what has caused development in China so fast in the past 40 years? Today, I invited YP back to this show, and we are going to talk about the foundation of China's economic miracles. Welcome back, YP. Thank you, Michelle. Glad to be here. <laughs> Now, let's start with again your introduction, because just as a reminder to help our audience remember who you are and why you are here. Yeah, my name is Y P Chen. I'm a principal in Chen Dunning, which primarily focuses on investment and business advisory service in Greater China in the U S. I've been doing investment,、uh, business management, entrepreneurship, and education in U S. in Greater China in the past twenty five years. So, in addition to doing my own stuff, I'm also advisory board member in University of Washington Bethel Business School, visiting executive lecturer at Dartmouth Business School. I'm also a part-time professor in Chinese University of Science and Technology, Southwest University of Science. Okay, I'm also a part-time professor in China. Southwest University of Science and Technology, as well as Tianjin University, and I also teach a class in Shanghai University. Thank you, Michelle, for the invitation again to share with the audience some of my thought about Chinese economic growth.、Mm-hmm. So last time you touched on the key drivers that you have summarized, right, as your analysis. Let's just give a very quick refresh on what are the key drivers that you think that has been driving. China's economic success from 1978 to now. Yes, fortunately, I think there are four key drivers that help China to achieve such a success in the past 40 years. One is social system innovation. Second thing is Chinese long-term thinking with a very pragmatic pilot reform program. The third is the huge population with very cheap labor, 
And the fourth one is technology innovation. Yeah, last time we digged into the technology innovation, and、uh, we talked about the perceptions of China is the copycat. But、uh, if we peel down and look at the data, look at、uh, many of the facts,、uh, then we see China Chinese people can innovate and has innovated a lot of、uh, products, technologies, and services. And that's the one of the driven. Course, the key drivers behind China's economic growth these years. Now, YP, could you please also help us to understand or dig into a little bit more on the other three key drivers? Let's start with the first one you mentioned: the social system innovation. What do you mean by social system here?、Uh, sure. I mean, I think for some of you know, I was born in China. I left China at age fifteen. So when I grew up, was purely under the communist party, and what's what's interesting is when I grew up, there was actually pretty much the disparity between the rich and the poor in the village not much. To some extent, it was pretty equal. That's part of the ideology of communism. But the challenge we there is purely under communism, it did not produce enough of material good. Uh, for living standard was、uh, not great. So what when Deng Xiaoping come back to power nineteen seventy eight, he did something very smart that、um, innovation that have never done before is first of all, and he really opened up China to kind of free market economy. At the same time, he did not give up control. Of the state, that's very clever. As compared to Soviet Union, as we know, the Soviet Union went through the political reform, economic reform at the same time. It caused a lot of problem.、Mm-hmm. So the Chinese social system innovation, when Deng Xiaoping was、uh, first of all, he established the agricultural reform, and he also created a special economic zone. Which was,、uh, you know, was Shenzhen, Zhuhai, and Xiamen, and、um, one more thing I forgot.、Uh, so these four special economic zones, Shenzhen was next to Hong Kong. So he started to open up this reform, and then when it becomes successful, then he went through other type of reform and the housing reform. And actually, for some people do not know, in the eighty and ninety. Actually, used to be all the housing was owned by government and state-owned enterprise, and then what they did was they sell all these、uh, dormitory housing to the worker, the government employee. So they did that, and then also one thing they did was,、uh, as we know, in the early two thousand, they went through a WTO, a session WTO forced the reform of、uh, state-owned enterprise. And secondly, they went through open the capital market in, in right before after that. So what China did was they kind of move away from the communist ideologies and embrace the capitalism system to great extent, but not totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think、uh, one of the example you just mentioned on the agricultural side, right? The land was 
totally owned and controlled by the country, by the government. Now it's still owned by the country, by the government. But the change has been done was, before it was like everybody, they go to work together, the farmers, they went to work together and they're equally divided with whatever the profit come from there. Well, if you do more, you don't get more. Then with this reform, the ownership still belongs to the country, but people, each family, they would have a piece of land that they can work on, and then they will keep the profit. So that, I think that's a big difference. Well, they will keep part of the profit, I would say, in that way, right? It's not everything <laughs> they produce that they keep. But that really changed the motivation of people, and that generated a lot of more productivity. No question about it. I think what you touch on is a point that's really important. Before they reformed Dan Shopping Board in 1978, in China, was what we call iron rice bowl. Iron rice bowl. Yeah, the iron rice bowl. A bowl, them. right? That means doesn't matter you work or not, you get the same pay. Essentially, did not provide that incentive for people to work harder. Mm-hmm. So the reform did in the agricultural reform initially, and what they did was ultimately the government still have the ownership, but they give out the land, parts of each individual person, so they could, if they work harder, they get, they would keep more they they work on. So basically, provide a capitalistic type of incentive. And that's what made the China works well in the past 40 years. And then, of course, uh, Deng Xiaoping has a very famous phrase said, let some people get rich first. Mm-hmm. So what he did was he opened up, let other people get rich, especially in the coastal and Xinjiang, and used that as example, so let other people follow. So that was a really clever way of uh, in a way the society well, where there was absolutely no incentive where everything was equal but then it does not have enough productivity and economic incentive and made it work mm-hmm. yeah okay so you also mentioned the long-term thinking with the pragmatic pilot reform i think you have already touched it with examples like the shenzhen special economic zone yeah that, that's part of it i think one of the thing is i want to also emphasize the long-term thinking you know chinese are known for a long-term thinking a strategic thinker even the government in uh, they have a five-year strategic plan, right? In uh, and people are normally in power for ten or twenty years. So when you're in the power of ten and twenty year uh, longer, you could take a long-term strategic bet, which is very different from the U.S. system and democratic system. You're in the house or representative. You have two years. You know, you spend one year going to job, you spend one year in campaign, and two years you don't get elected. <laughs> you don't have a job, so. So that kind of uh, incentive does not allow you to think long term. So what China did was they really have a system allow people to think long term. So YP, can you give us a specific example of China thinking about this long term or the long term thinking and that uh, programmatic uh, approach? Yeah, for example, when when Deng started this uh, special economic zone in the uh, 1980s. So he picked four coastal area and, and uh, started it. And they started with Xinjiang, right? And then what they did was they test out first. Xinjiang were close to Hong Kong. There's a lot of people from Hong Kong leverage on the cheap labor on the other side of the border. And then a lot of factory and, and uh, 
bring a large job to China, and at the same time, because the input, they enjoyed the low cost, they were able to be very competitive in the global market. As a result, they were able to achieve quite a lot. So China learned from that, and then after become very successful and lower the similar model in other area. Another example is that um, you look at the in, in uh, 1994, I first went to Shanghai, and Pudong was really rice field. Yeah. So what they did was uh, they used Pudong as the pilot program. Mm-hmm. They started build um, the financial center, and now you know, 25 year later, 20 years later, you see skyscraper, large financial center, and really a booming area. So what they did was they kind of learn from that user pilot program, learn from there what they learned in uh, Shanghai and then kind of duplicate the model and elsewhere. I think that is one really, really clever thing. And, and, and also another talking about long term is that when the Chinese government thinking about this every five year plan, as we know, any kind of planning is not always work. But if something doesn't work, they blow it back. So, so one thing what Chinese have done in the past 40 years is they, they combine the long term thinking in a very pragmatic way of doing things, they allow to be very successful. I kept the talk over this year in uh, Dutton Business School and uh, Adam Smith Society that is under the Manhattan Institute, a, a U.S. think tank. And one thing I, I talk about state capitalism, state, what China have done in terms of very pragmatic approach is that what China have done that is not able to uh, duplicate other places China did a brilliant thing. What he did was he moved away from communist ideologies and start to embrace capitalism. But at the same time, it did not give up control. And that is one of the brilliant moves I think China did. Mm-hmm. And it's not everything started to change, right? They roll out programs, uh, you know, little by little, and uh, learn from those pilots and uh, the different programs. So the rollout is not disruptive. That, that's correct. That's correct. It's, it's like, you know what? It's like uh, how we do R&D, right? How we do testing anything. So you start with something small. If something is successful, you duplicate a model with something else. If something does not work, you then just you kill it. Back. You just yeah. roll back, just kill it. Mm-hmm. And, and that is something is great because it will cost you less money, less disruption to the society, and a more stability in the society, which is very critical from a Chinese point of view. So another point that you have made as the key drivers is the cheap labor cost and also you you know China has a huge market just internally. Can you elaborate a little bit on that part? Yes, in the cheap labor as we know China is now the largest country in terms of population, it's about 1.3-1.4 billion people. And what's interesting recently I saw data from US Labor Department, labor statistics and in, interesting enough, you're looking at the entire global workforce, labor force is about 3.3 billion people. Out of about seven, you know, seven, a little bit slightly over seven billion people. China has 1.4 billion people, but China has 806 million working population as of 2015. So effectively, 
China have the highest labor force among all the countries. You know, it, China's labor force participation is seventy-six percent. As a comparison, United States only have sixty-five percent, and Japan only have fifty-eight percent. Yeah, that's a very interesting data point. Just the Chinese people thinking about Chinese people, seventy-six percent of those people who are at this working age are working. Yeah. Right. That compares to you know in some more developed countries,、uh, many people are on social systems and.、Uh, Not need to put efforts, but they kind of、uh, still can make a living through this、uh, very developed、uh, social system. Yeah, it, it's kind of interesting、mm-hmm. that this listen by different countries of this system, and, and sometimes is the people in the country decide how to be best to build this the social system. You know, and I think what's interesting in China is in the Chinese historical from a culture point of view, which I touch a little bit later. It's actually very hardworking people. So as a result, they're able to, to capitalize on that. And back to about the cheap labor. What's interesting? I have a chart here. The chart is from,、uh, I think, from Economists and published 2015. In 1990, Chinese is among the lowest in term of salary, right? And for example, in 1990. The average Chinese price is about eighty dollar US、uh, a month, and you look at the dead time Malaysia is about three hundred eighty, and then Thailand is about two hundred fifty. Fast forward by two thousand and fifteen, Chinese labor is the highest among. All these country and Chinese labor is now at about six fifty. Malaysia is about six fifty, but Thailand is about three hundred eighty. Indonesia and three hundred, and Philippines actually is about hundred and sixty. So what is interesting is China was able to leverage a huge labor force, huge, very cheap labor. Able to really grow its economy in the past a twenty-five year, and at the same time because economic growth, the tide raises all the boat. The people, the working people, benefit from as well because they enjoy high salary cost of living.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, labor cost was a competitive advantage in China,、uh, and now China is losing this competitive advantage to other Southeast Asian countries. But、uh, many of the laborers are trained, educated through the past many years、uh, economic growth through the system. Yep. Yeah, no question about it. Yes, agree. Okay, I think it's time to take a quick break. We will be back right away. Are you interested in expanding your business to China, but don't know how to start? Are you wondering how to grow your sales in the China market and win over competition? Meet Michelle Zhou and her team at Pacific Technologies Consulting Group. Our consultants are U.S.-China experts and have all lived and worked in both the U.S. and China, with many years' experience in market entry strategies, management, and execution. We can help you find the right partners, develop opportunities, and grow your business in China. Please visit ptcgconsulting.com today.
You are listening to In China with Michelle Zhou. To call into our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to info at ptcgconsulting.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back. We are talking about the foundation of China's economic miracles, and my guest is YP Chen. Before the break, we briefly talked about the key drivers of China's economic success for the past 40 years. That includes the social system innovation, the long-term thinking with pragmatic pilot reform, and a huge population in China with cheap labor. And last week we also touched on, or we went really deep on the technology innovation. So those are the four key drivers that YP has summarized to look at behind China's economic success. But I have a question here is for YP, you think to, to help us understand how did China, you know, really grow uh, or maybe it's more a why question. So why those four key drivers that for the growth in China? What is behind those key drivers that you summarized for this economic development? Thanks, Michelle. I think to understand that, uh, one of the key things we need to understand is Chinese culture and Chinese history. Let's go back to the Chinese history. As we know, Chinese has about 5,000 history. And the average dynasty in China is about 300 years old. 300 years. Yes. yes. As comparisons in the uh, United States, as of now, we, the U.S. history is 242 years old. That's less than one, the average dynasty in China. Exactly. And also, you look in the last thousand years, eight out of the last 10 century. China was the most powerful economy in the world. So from a historical perspective, what you see in China in the past 100 years, 150 years, kind of decline the GDP. It was picked last pick in 1850, then it went down. The Chinese GDP back in about 1850 is a one-third of the global GDP. By 1948, 49 actually, when the communist China was established, and Chinese GDP was about 5%. And it went down significantly. From the one-third of the world in the 1950s to only 5%. Yeah, so yeah, it, it took about 100 years for China to lose more than about 25% global GDP. But meanwhile, the Industrial Revolution, the U.S. Uh, possibly move ahead and, and create a much bigger engine for growth, account for bigger GDP. Yeah, and that uh, slowdown in GDP or the reduce, right? I think that was caused by all those wars in China uh, as a, one of the major reasons. Yeah, I think one reason is that number one, like any company, any individual, there's something called cycle. And you know, human cycle now averages about 70, 80 years old. Company cycle, you know, it's the opposite much shorter. You know, you see very few companies last more than 100 years. So that's a cycle. A country is also a cycle too. An example I give you about Chinese uh, average dynasty about 300 years old. So what it does is if the company prosper and become maybe too elegant, the loss, the innovation, and they go down, another country come ahead. So what China experienced is one is what I call normal economic uh, country cycle. 
the the contribute factor was of course was uh, you know they China was not willing to open up did not innovate in the eighteen after eighteen fifty they think they are the greatest power and which was and but then they failed to adapt failed to innovate. It, it fell through the history, through foreign occupation, and civil war, starvation, all things you name it, that happened to a country in, in a very negative way. But so what's interesting is you look back, despite this kind of cycle, you look back in the 5,000 of Chinese history, you know, what is interesting is, as we know, Confucius philosophy, Confucius values started about 2,100 years ago, was really focused on talk about government and, and, and personal morality, talk about social relationship, justice, and it focuses on education, which, you know, it's, it's very a collectivism, which is very different from the U.S. model where individualism, uh, freedom is really important, democracy is very important. So these two are really, from a cultural point of view, from a philosophical point of view, is very different from each other. Yes, in China we talk about the we, and in the U.S., we talk about I. That's just a very simple way to think about this collectivism versus the individualism. That, that's correct, because I think we could not look at economic development if we do not truly understand the historical and the philosophical and the cultural issues. Mm-hmm. So we do see the differences between U.S. and China in terms of the history and the cultures, and how is that, uh, just thinking back to the key drivers, right? How do you see that tie into the key drivers? Yeah, the key drivers, from a history point of view, one of the key things we talk about is just that because Chinese has just a rich history and really a very proud culture, the Dan was only in 1850, 1949, when the Chinese come back to power, Luli established itself, and after the communists took over, they recognized that they need to get strong again. But one thing they recognized, they could not wholesale copy the Western model. Mm-hmm. So they need to figure out a model that's most appropriate for China. That's what Deng Xiaoping did. And so, and, and that is actually a key point that a lot of people do not understand in the West and because they do not appreciate the history and the culture of what China went through in the past 5,000 years. Mm -hmm. So I got that uh, your point uh, for China's cultural and uh, history, you know, has contributed uh, largely to to the key drivers, to the way of thinking and to the social system that is adopted and uh, many other things. Let's go a little bit deeper, cultural and history connection to the economic development. How do we really look into this in a systematic way to see the deep connection between these? Yes, I look at this thing fundamentally boiled down to three major foundations, what I call one is called cultural foundation, and second is strategy, and third thing is about execution. From the China Culture Foundation point of view, there's, I think, three ingredients. I thought about this issue about uh, a couple of years ago. I come to a conclusion that in a stable society, like the US and China today, for people to get to become middle class, I think there are three factors. One is really a family center. You have a kind of um, a united family, repelling the kid grew up under a kind of united household. That's important, the family. Chinese really focus on that. 
The second aspect of thing is really about education. And also, education is still one of the very, very important part for Chinese people. If you look at the new immigrants to the U.S., right, uh, those people who got uh, very wealthy, many of them they immigrated to the U.S. or their kids come here because the education system in the U.S. and uh, uh, people spend money to send their children come here for college and even for our middle school, high school. That's just、uh, one of the reflection on how important education is to Chinese. Well, education always、uh, important element in Chinese history in the past five thousand years because education is what we call the equalizer. They allow people to move up to society regardless what background they're in. That's why the Chinese、uh, examination system for thousands of years is really allowed the people in the lowest. Class to move up in the society, and it's really meritocracy. I mean, I think United States and China definitely share that common thread in terms of meritocracy education, and、mm-hmm. they allow people, regardless what your background is, you could educate, you do well, you could easily get into middle class. Yeah, I wanted to point out another point in the education system in China. And it is changing. For the past many years, the education system is purely on. You know, like college entrance, right? It's purely on the college entrance exam, the scores. So that make it easier for people coming from the poor family or from the countryside if they focus on their study and focus on those subjects that have been tested, then they would be able to get to those elite schools. That's, that's correct. I mean, I think, of course, you could like, any system. There's also a downside to it. But in generally, the Chinese education system, and it works. It allows、uh, social mobility. It gives incentive for real study hard. It allows the country to do well, have the talent they need to compete in the global environment.、Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's、uh, continue the topic on this、uh, China Cultural Foundation. You just、uh, yes,、uh, I think the third element of China Culture Foundation is、uh, Chinese people are work, very hardworking, and in one, for example, one thing that and I, now I give lecture to the student in the MBA and. And basically, they asked me, said, "Well, you were able to achieve the American dream. What's your trait?" And you know, my trait is that one of the key things is working hard. Let me give you an example. I was able to get my MBA at Columbia Business School, and、um, and work in IBM at the same time. For two years, I worked hundred hours a week. Hundred hours a week. Yes. Wow. So I think in the end of the day, one of the key drivers what allow China to work well is people works really hard. And in, in the, as mentioned before about this uh, uh, labor participation, right? I mean, seventy percent, seventy six percent of the people in China are working, versus only sixty five percent in the U.S. and fifty eight percent in Japan. What's interesting also what allow the Chinese culture work is. People do not give a lot of credit to China is is how China leverage on the power of women. One of the thing that、uh, the company China did really well was really innovative term, treat the woman equal. And and, and Mao has a, a slogan said, "Women hold up half the sky." 
And, and what's interesting in today, you look at the data from U.S. Labor Department, 70% of the Chinese women are participating in labor force. As a comparison, United States only has 58%, France only has 50%, and India has a similar population size as China, only 28%. You think about it. If you could leverage the power of women, which is half your population, the country becomes so much more productive, able to produce so much more. About global self-made wealthy women, they listed 88 people. Of the 88 people, the most accomplished self-made billionaire and 64% are from China. I mean, that is really give you the example how powerful if you could leverage on a woman in a society, it could be such a productive uh, driving force for the economic, political, economically. Mm -hmm. Totally agree, especially as a woman. All right, it's time to take another quick break. We will be right back. China is now the second largest economy in the world. There are hundreds of opportunities for worldwide business professionals to start looking in China. From business leaders to manufacturers to artists and students, you need to discover these opportunities to grow your business and your career. Listen every week for In China with Michelle Zhou, Thursdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For business sake, you need to tune in. You are listening to In China with Michelle Zhou. To call into our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to info at ptcgconsulting.com. Now, back to this week's program. Now we're back. Uh, before the break, YP, you mentioned about uh, the three key elements of those foundations for China's economic miracles. We really spent some time on the cultural side, which is driven by the history and which also the cultural reflects on the values that the Chinese people hold. Of that, you mentioned three things. You mentioned the family, you mentioned the education, and you mentioned Chinese are really, really hardworking people. Uh, the other two things you mentioned is strategy and execution. Let's dig into it. So on the strategy side, what um, strategies uh, that China is taking that you think really yeah, driven the... Yeah, based on, on, on my study, based on some of the documentation, my research I, I read, and what's interesting is Chinese strategic focus in the past, uh, past 40 years is that they want to modernize but they do not want to wholesale copy the Western model. And one of the key things he did was he actually had quite a lot of dialogue with Lee Gong Yeo, the, the founder and the first premier of Singapore. And what Deng Xiaoping decided, actually the Singapore model is something that actually could be very appropriate for Chinese development. And what is Singapore model? Singapore model essentially is 
you take authoritarian leadership past Confucius value, past Western rule of law and administration check, minus the messiness of liberal democracy. In other words, the Singapore model is taking the best of the East and the West and then subtracting the thing that might not work mm-hmm. in a particular country. So with that, and what China did was really kind of leverage on the Confucius value with over 2,500 uh, years. And it's holding by many, many Chinese people. That's the it's, foundation. Yeah, that's the foundation. There's mm-hmm. no question about it. And, and they focus on this and, and, and develop well from a strategic point of view. Of course, this approach has really horrified a lot of people in the West. One of the, the assumptions and the U.S. mainstream, the scholar thought, and the political elite thought that by allowing China to get to WTO in 2000, 2001, and they hope China will open up, and sooner or later, China will follow the Western democracy model. But what they realized that after 18, 19 years, China did develop economically, but however, China did not follow the Western democratic system, a democratic model. Mm-hmm. So the strategy we just talked about, it sounds very abstract, right? It's on the philosophy level, talking about the different the Chinese and the Western side of philosophies and the Singapore model, the formula you shared with us is still very high level, very abstract. Then, but I think the key here is no matter what kind of strategy you have, no matter how um, how well you planned, I think the key here is execution. A lot of times, uh, execution on the plan, if it's not uh, being executed well, then it will not uh, go as planned, or it will not reach the goals. China is such a huge country with 1.3, 1.4 million people. How did China execute? And that's one of your foundation you just mentioned earlier. Yeah, that's correct. One thing in, in the business, I always say strategy is 10%, execution is 90%. A great plan, a great strategy needs someone to carry it out, needs someone to do it. And you look back in the Chinese history, in the past 40 years, the question, who are the people that carry out Deng Xiaoping, the strategic vision of modernized China without wholesale westernization. But how does China do it? And when we talk about execution, and one of the key things about execution is you need organization. You need organization to carry out your mission. You need people to carry out your plan. So when you talk about organization, some of the key organizations will come in a western thing that we talk about. Some of these most powerful organizations, it could be Walmart, right? Walmart has about uh, 300, I'm a 2 point, over 2 million people. 
you talk about IBM, IBM has 110 year history and its employees only 300,000. So in a communal organization, who would be a very powerful organization in China that carry out government strategic thinking in the past 40 years? That's the Chinese Communist Party. We have a lot of people, I would say, Many people, even they are working in different uh, jobs, they are part of this communist party. And of course, the government is very powerful in China. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I think communist party, one thing for people to understand how the Chinese uh, work is that the communist member are the elite group of the people in the society. And they are only about 6.4% of the population communist member. They are tracked and they're identified mostly in college. And then order for communist member to become a country leader, it takes about 25 to 30 years. We've proven track like a no mistake. And what's interesting is that these people have been groomed since they are in the 20s and they went to special school, they observed in a different job and different performance and allowed them to really grow up and, in a, and take more responsibility over time. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think to connect to what we talked earlier, uh, the history and the value system, right? Essentially, China has 89 million members. Think about it. You have 89 million elite technocrats who are well-trained, who are competent to carry out your strategic plan, your country, lawmaker. It makes a huge difference. I think that is the point that a lot of people fail to appreciate. Mm-hmm. And those people have the same core values. So they would be able to stay together. They will stay together, they train, they groom, and and that is from a human resource management perspective, the Chinese Communist Party know how to identify, train, and give opportunity to test these people before putting them in a key position. Mm -hmm. I think uh, it's time to the end of this show. Let's have a quick summary of the key growth drivers to China's economic development during the past 40 years. So why not, uh, YP, you give us a quick top-down summary? Uh, yes. The way I look at the key economic driver in the past 40 years with China, we are powerful. Number one thing is, right, we have a few thousand years of history, focus on education and family-centric culture. And that's incredibly important, right? In no matter where Chinese go, Give them, you know, give them a 10, 20 year or one generation. They will move up because they focus on family education. And then another thing is, uh, if you think about Chinese, is actually incredibly entrepreneurial. They have this entrepreneurial culture. The guys where they go, they could open a, a restaurant, laundry store, and now they open this, uh, this uh, high-tech company. And, and they are incredibly entrepreneurial. And, and the third thing what made China work is that they really, I mentioned before, they really have a very competent government with a very, very efficient infrastructure. And the last time we talked about this whole uh, Chinese innovation, what made Chinese innovation powerful? They're not just focused on a piecemeal. 
what they're focusing on is what I call made in China manufacturing ecosystem and innovation. Basically, they talk about ecosystem and the entire supply chain, and that's why it made it very extremely difficult for you just win one piece of work outside China. It does not work that way. Uh, finally, as I mentioned before, uh, what made China work is China has 1.4 billion population, and now it's the biggest mobile phone market with about 1.4 billion mobile phone. It's the biggest auto market, now with about 24, 25 uh, million passenger car a year. That's why GM, that's why Apple, those companies need to be in China. So in the end, what made China work is really start from a culture and really the, the, the strategy and then to have company be able to execute it. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, they will have talked about the foundations of China's economic miracles. I think that's a great deep dive into it. And we were going to next time, I think, YP, I want to invite you back and dig down into on the you know, organization, the company level, because what we have been talking last week and this week was really on the very high level on the country level, industry level. And next time we can dig down into organizational level and see what makes organizations so great, which they add up together to the China's economic development at the pace. So I want to thank you for your contribution here and hopefully our sharing with our audience would help everybody to know more about China and help them to plan their future their career, and their business in China. Thank you, Michelle. It's my honor to be here to share my thought with uh, the audience here, and I look forward to the next um, uh, discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to In China with Michelle Zhao. Please join us for another edition next Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time and 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll talk again next week. 